want to mention we started a new uh, reading plan for this year. Uh, we've got several copies of these. Some are on that table. If we run out, there are some upstairs in the lobby as well. Uh, last year, uh, some of you will remember, and some of you did it with us, which is great. Uh, we did a reading plan where we covered kind of the, the major portions of the Bible. We did not read it from cover to cover, every verse, every word, uh, but we did cover the major themes in a manageable way um, throughout the year so that we could kind of commit to faithfully spending time in the Word every single day. And we're going to do that again this year. Um, this year's a little bit more unique. We are only going through the New Testament together. So if you're on there and you're thinking, Danny, why are we starting in Luke this week? Uh, well, it's because Luke's in the New Testament. Uh, but also this is kind of broken down in some uh, different kind of chronological uh, different ways. And this is the way that um, the, the person who put this Bible reading plan together did it. And so if you'll look at it, uh, we don't read all the gospel accounts back to back to back. Instead, it's kind of broken up. Um, the gospel accounts will happen throughout the year, uh, different epistles will happen, things about the early church, all those kind of things. But anyway, uh, we'll be using this plan this year, and we'll kind of be following along with that on Wednesday nights in our Bible study time, very similar to what we did last year. Uh, it seemed like that worked pretty well. Most people enjoyed it. Um, if you didn't, you can let me know that later. That helps me for planning purposes in the future. Uh, we can certainly do something different or, uh, or, or try to have some different times together if it would be better. But for now... We're going to go through this Bible reading plan together, so I'd encourage you to grab one. Um, it's pretty simple. It is a chapter a day, uh, which, is, which is very manageable, and it's also five days a week. So if you miss a day, you've got a day to recover throughout the week. So uh, just know that. It makes it a little bit more manageable to spend time with God throughout the week. Also this year, we did include some memory verses that are in blue under each week. What's really interesting about this, if you haven't looked at it, is by the time the year is over, if you commit to the memory verses, you will be able to quote the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. So that would be really cool uh, to be able to quote Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and be able to quote from memory the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, uh, preached by Jesus himself. So anyway, uh, we're kind of excited about doing this together. Um, if you would rather do it on the app, the Version Bible app also has this plan. It's called the F260 New Testament only plan. Um, it will only do it for 260 days straight through. So if you look at our plan, we break it down to five per week, which gives two days in between the next week, right? Seven, five, that's how it's broken out to make it for the year. But if you just use the app, and some of you did this last year, it's going to do 260 days straight. So by the time you get to, I don't know when that is in the year. September-ish, all right? When you get there, if you read every single day, you will be done. So just know the way that we're going through this plan is five days per seven days to give a break in case you miss something. I know you're thinking, Danny, why do you keep explaining this to us? I don't know why. I apologize. But anyway... Um, this is the plan we're going through. Love for you to get a copy. Uh, spend some time in God's Word throughout the week. Chapter a day, five days a week. We'll kind of be looking at um, some of these things as we spend time together on uh, Wednesday nights. And so that's the, the new plan for this year. Uh, we started on Monday reading in the Gospel of Luke. And so we read about um, the, the news of the birth of John the Baptist and the news of the birth of Jesus. We've read about the unique circumstances of each of their births, John being born to uh, a barren woman in order to pave the way for Jesus, and Jesus being born to a virgin and being the Savior of the world. Both of these, by the way, very unique uh, situations, very unique foretellings of births that will happen in the New Testament. 
Of course, we read about the birth of Jesus. We've spent uh, several weeks uh, just recently celebrating uh, the, the birth of Jesus. We've read about a, a few things from the, the early years of Jesus, including his time in the temple, asking questions and giving answers, and the time in which his parents lost him. We don't know a whole lot about the early years of Jesus, but we did read a little bit about those years in the beginning of Luke. Uh, we've read about the ministry of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus himself. That was today's reading. And tomorrow we will encounter uh, in Luke chapter 4 something that's very famously known as the temptation of Jesus. So I'm skipping ahead a little bit tonight. If you have not read tomorrow's reading, which you, you could have, but you shouldn't because it's not tomorrow. Uh, you have not gotten uh, to this point yet in the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is a very famous passage that we find in Luke, and we find it in, in Matthew. Um, very well known what happens to Jesus and the struggle between him and the devil. And so it's not unfamiliar, uh, but I still thought as I, as I kind of dug into this and looked at this this week, I thought um, what an interesting way to kind of kick off the new year, kick off our Wednesday night Bible studies by looking at how Jesus himself overcame temptation as we process through how we can uh, also um, overcome temptation. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 4. You may have already done so. Um, but as you're going there, I wanted to share this little story. Now, I, I want to full, full disclaimer here. I don't know if this story is true. I read it off the internet, um, but I thought it was interesting, the principle behind it uh, nonetheless. So may, maybe some of you can tell me differently whether or not um, it's, it's true or false. But the story goes that when Leonardo da Vinci decided to paint what became his masterpiece, The Last Supper, he sought for a long time to find a man that he could use to be the perfect model of the picture of Christ for the painting. Now, he finally found a man. It was a young man by the name, and if, you've, if, if, you've, if you know the story, or if it's true, then, then you may remember this, but his name was Petro Bandanelli. Now, he found this guy because he had this beautiful voice when he was singing in one of the famous choirs of Rome. And when he find, found this guy, he hired him and asked him if he would sit for him as he immortalized the face of, of this guy into the painting as the face of Christ. Now, years passed as uh, da Vinci was working on the painting, and most of the painting had been finished. But the artist still lacked a suitable model whom he could paint as Judas Iscariot, someone whose features bore the indelible marks of sin. And so he had painted the majority of the picture, Jesus as well, but he still had not found who would be the perfect representation of the opposite in this picture of Jesus, Judas. Finally, as he searched, he found a beggar, uh, a man who had a villainous countenance, exactly suited to portray the face of the traitor Judas. So da Vinci hires the man, asks him to sit so that the artist could transfer his features to the face of Judas on the canvas. Now, the this part of the story that gets interesting is that when he was finally finished and he paid the man for his service, he said, by the way, what is your name? Petro Bandinelli is what the man replied. Sin had done its work and left its mark. All that lay between the man with the face of Jesus and the man with the face of Judas was a few short years of sin. Now, I don't know if this story is true, so don't hold me to this. But I thought the principle was still true enough and fascinating enough for us to consider for just a few minutes. 
Just a few short years had passed between the man who looked like the perfect representation of Jesus to be painted for this masterpiece to the perfect representation of the opposite of Jesus, which would be Judas, was the same man who would be painted that fit the bill for this picture. The writer who shares this story says that there really is only one difference between the two guys. The difference was the marks of sin. I thought about that story as I thought about Luke chapter 4, and and really here's what I thought. Is this not the same struggle for each of us every single day? Could this not be our story from year to year that though we think is tragic for a guy named Petro Bandinelli, could this not also be true for each of us if we're not careful to how we respond in this life to sin? Each one of us in this room this evening can choose to walk with Jesus or we can choose to give in to the temptations of this life. The demise of this man, Petro Bandinelli, didn't begin with his desire to sin, by the way. I don't know if you know this, but the sinful desires within us will always be a battle forever. You will always have desires to do things that are contrary to what God wants you to do. It didn't begin with his desire to sin. It began when he gave in to those temptations, when he gave in to those desires. The first sin that ever happened began with temptation. It began with giving in to the desires of our sin. As a matter of fact, according to Chuck Swindoll, scholar, uh, Bible writer, the first temptation involved what he describes as four distinct phases of temptation. Now, I thought this was interesting enough that I wanted you to write it down. Because as I read through the, the phases, I thought to myself, this is exactly my life. Here are the phases that Chuck writes down that each of us will deal with when it comes to temptation. The first one is this, the appeal. He describes this as something forbidden, promises fulfillment apart from God's provision. In other words, God has a perfect way. He has a will for our life. He has made provision for what we need. But something outside of God has convinced us to do it another way. That it will be better on our own. That we don't need Him. Whatever the case may be, His provision is not what we need. Rather, what we need is the promise from this forbidden something that will lead us astray. It begins with an appeal. It moves then to what he calls the struggle. This is what he labels the the tension that builds between the appeal of sin and the belief in God's goodness, right? The appeal is out there. Here's something contrary to what God desires for you. Will you take it? Now the struggle begins in our life of this. Will we trust God's provision and His goodness that though we desire that sin, God's way is better or... Will we do, like I can testify personally that I have done many times, will we choose the sin that separates us from God? Then he moves to the third one. He calls this the response. The appeal happens, right? Something contrary to what God wants promises us a better way. Now we've got to wrestle. Will we give in to the sin or will we continue to believe in God's goodness? And then the response is ultimately the decision that's made either to disobey or to wait on God. And then lastly, he gives us this. He calls this the aftermath. The consequences of sin breed despair, right? How many of us have been in that moment? 
the the maybe maybe a, a huge understatement by the way despair may not be exactly uh, what, how we would use to describe those moments where we chose sin or the aftermath could be the fruit of obedience that multiplies blessing right we could choose to follow Jesus or we could choose to follow sin the choice is ours God leaves that to us the question is which one will we choose now I was thinking about this I was processing through what what Chuck wrote about this and I thought if this is in my brain every time sin comes knocking at the door I feel like it would help me process it a little bit better, right? Ooh, that's an appeal where the devil's promising something that's not true, right? Ooh, let me, let me wrestle with this. Should I go with him into total destruction or trust in God's goodness? Oh, that seems obvious, right? Like, why would I do anything different? Then the response comes, I want to wait on God. He knows what's better. And then the aftermath is that God uses me and blesses me and multiplies the growth in me that he desires rather than for me to take a step back and go towards sin, right? Doesn't it seem that simple? If I will just process everything through this lens, maybe I won't choose to disobey. I don't think that's typically the case with most of us. As a matter of fact, I know for me, this will be one of the most difficult things in our lives. How many of you would agree with me that battling temptation, battling the desire to disobey God or to sin is one of the most difficult daily struggles? Anybody else out there agree with that? All right, I appreciate you giving me some nods. Thank you for not leaving me on an island uh, by myself. It will be one of the most difficult Not just struggles like, oh, that's going to happen at some point. Daily struggles that each of us will live with and wrestle with. Now, let me tell you this. Your sin may look a little different than my sin, all right? Your temptation may look a little different than my temptation. Your struggle, your battle, the way the devil presents himself to you may look a little different than how he presents himself to me. But make no mistake, he will present himself to every person. God knows better than any of us the devastation of sin. He knows the battle. He knows the struggle that temptation and sin will be for our lives. He knows this enough to give us a model to overcome temptation. Matter of fact, John sums up the temptations of this life in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. I want to read it to you. I think it's actually in the notes, potentially. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are three categories that seem to stand apart in all sin that we find in the world. i give you a good example of this. This is exactly what the devil used in the beginning to tempt Eve in the garden. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Let me read this verse to you. This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... Now, what was the tree? What was the command? Don't eat from it, right? Anything else you want, but not this one. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. You know what John would sum that up as? The desires of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. You know how John would sum that up? the desires of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You know how John would sum that up? The pride of life. When these three things combined, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now we know what happened from that moment. Sin enters the world. God's perfect design is destroyed, and the thread of redemption begins. Can I tell you something? The devil would try to do this exact same thing with Jesus. But the wilderness experience with Jesus didn't go the same way that the wilderness experience went with Adam and Eve. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't have to give in to temptation. We don't have to live in sin. In fact, we can choose a better way. Jesus was tempted, here's what the writer said, in every respect, but don't miss this. Even though he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, he was without sin. You say, Danny, that was God. I agree. You say, Danny, that was Jesus, the the Son of God who would come to save the world. I completely agree. You know what Jesus did? He stepped out of eternity, and he wrapped himself in flesh, and he said, God, test me. Put me to the fire. Let me walk the plank. I will be the perfect sacrifice for the world. He said, I will show every human being what it looks like to follow you. He says, God, I will be a model. Jesus shows us a better way. He teaches us how to overcome temptations in this life. Can I ask you something, friends? What if, I know it's a stretch. I'm with you. I'm in the same boat, by the way. What if we decided to follow Jesus? What if we decided that his model wasn't just something that was cool in the Bible, that the stories in the New Testament aren't just fun to read about, What if we decided that they're actually there for a purpose to help us follow in the same path in which Jesus walked? What if we decided to follow Him? Let me show you how He tells us how we can overcome temptation according to Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to move kind of quickly. Verse 1, Luke chapter 4. Here's how Luke begins this account. He says, "...in Jesus..." Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, this is always an interesting statement to me because if you were without food for 40 days, how do you think you would describe yourself? If I go without food for a day, I'm saying hungry. If I'm without food for 40 days, I don't know if there's a word to describe that, but this is where Jesus is in this moment. Literally, according to the beginning of this from Luke, the Holy Spirit was with Jesus. Now, you may remember from our readings, especially because they were today, Jesus was returning from the Jordan for a specific reason. Why was he at the Jordan? He was being baptized. Yes, Jordan. Thank you for that. (laughs) Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. And here's what Luke 
shows us in chapter 3, just before this moment takes place. He says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, there are all kinds of theological implications about the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming down. And what does this mean for him to descend on him? And what did God's voice sound like? And did anybody else hear it? I don't know about all those things. I'm not here to discuss what happened at the baptism of Jesus. However, after this incredible moment and before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, we find him being tempted by the devil in Luke chapter 4, described as full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to add a little side note here, by the way. I have often found that in the greatest spiritual moments of my life instantly come one of the greatest attacks from the devil. That's exactly what's happening in this moment. Jesus has been baptized. The Spirit is upon him like a dove. God has spoken down from heaven. His earthly ministry, which we know about in the Gospels, is about to take place. He is about to save the entire world from their sins. This is one of the high points of the beginning of the Gospel account of Jesus. And here is also where we find the devil trying to attack him, waiting to battle in the moments where we maybe were most spiritually refreshed. Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, I find this to be interesting. Jesus is following after God. He is literally being led by the Spirit, yet he finds himself battling with the devil. And it made me think of a little truth I wanted to throw out before we jump into these temptations that I just thought was significant for us to wrestle with for a moment. I don't mean to keep using the word wrestle, by the way. Walking in truth doesn't spare you from wrestling with temptation. You say, Danny, I'm been close to God. I've been doing what He wanted. I've been, I've been reading my Bible. I've been, you know, why, why am I dealing with these temptations? Well, just because you're following after God doesn't mean you're not going to experience the devil's warfare. As a matter of fact, the closer you are to Jesus, the probably the more likely it is that the devil is going to want to attack you. As a matter of fact, when I was a student, one of the most powerful messages I ever heard from an evangelist was a, was a sermon titled, Does Satan Know Your Name? And the whole sermon was about, is the devil attacking you, or does he not care because you make no impact for Jesus anyway? As a student, I was like, man, I'm not a threat to the devil because I don't even live my life for Jesus. No wonder he's not after me, right? It's in the moments where we are walking in truth where we do have to wrestle oftentimes with the most temptation. As a matter of fact, we read about another moment where this truth is taught earlier in Luke. I want to share it quickly, but we do, we do need to move forward. It came in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. You may remember this, and you may, this may always stand out to you, but it always does to me. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. In other words, they were living as perfect as they possibly could. But they had no child 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now you say, Danny, were they barren because of anything that they did? No, no, no. Scripture is clear to us. They were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. However, they still had to wrestle with the temptation to not trust in the goodness of God who would not give them what they thought they deserved most. I thought to myself, are there not pictures like this all throughout the Bible where good people who are faithfully following Jesus still have to wrestle with the temptation to trust or not trust in the goodness of God based on the circumstances of their life? As a matter of fact, this phrasing sounds a lot like the Israelites and their experience in the wilderness during the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 17, we discover a moment when God led the people to a place where there was no water. They didn't go there in disobedience. They went there as they followed God. And what's interesting is that the lesson God would teach them there is one he's continued to teach his people over the years. This is the principle. We go where he leads because he supplies what we need. That's why we go there. We don't go there because we see what we need. We go there because God leads us and he's the one who provides everything that we need. You may remember the story. It's in the beginning of Exodus chapter 17. They go to a place where there's no water. There's nothing but sand and rocks. And God tells Moses to take his staff and strike a rock and water flows from it. Though God provided for them over and over again, we know they failed to trust in God's provision and they were left to wander the wilderness for 40 years years. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2, Moses is writing, he teaches us that God used this time in the wilderness as a time to test the people. Here's what he wrote, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he said, Danny, why does this sound so familiar? Well, because Jesus is also entering a wilderness. He wouldn't be there for 40 years, but he would certainly be there for 40 days. He too, just like them, would also be tested. What's awesome about the experience with Jesus is that he came out on the other end a little bit different from the Israelites. He was fully dependent on God's leadership. We know this because he ate nothing during those days. According to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was fasting. He was depriving his body of anything it desired other than God. His entire focus was on hearing from God and following his ways. Now what I think is interesting is that the devil may have thought he found Jesus in a vulnerable condition because Jesus, as described by Luke, is hungry. But he clearly didn't realize what Jesus was actually full of. Of And we discover this as we continue. Look at verse 3. Let's jump into these temptations that we really, even though we don't have a lot of time, can, can learn a lot from. Jesus is out there. He's in the wilderness, led by the Spirit, tempted by the devil, at a vulnerable position after fasting for days. He is hungry. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now the thought over what's about to happen over the next couple verses is that Jesus wasn't simply tempted one time and not even tempted three times, although that's what we will discover from the reading. 
But the more likely possibility is that he was, over these 40 days, tempted many, many times. So imagine this for a moment. As he became more and more hungry over the course of 40 days, how much more this temptation actually becomes. Imagine the devil's persistence, which by the way shouldn't be too difficult to imagine because you've probably experienced it as well. Day one may not have been that big of a deal. Day five rolls around, Jesus' stomach is starting to rumble a little bit. Day 40 comes around and he is sickly looking like he's about to die. And the devil says, you're hungry, Jesus. Just make some food. God made you this way. He gave you the desire to eat. You need it. It won't hurt anybody else. This is just you and this stone and making it bread. What could be wrong with satisfying a physical need? And temptation number one shows itself. It deals with passions, specifically ours, and not even just sinful ones, but it deals with our passions over God's provision. Notice how the devil's trying to break the trust between Jesus and the Father. God has withheld food from you, so you should just make some. If he was good, why would you be without? If he was great, why wouldn't he have already brought you food? Why would he have not spared you from these moments. He wants to get Jesus to doubt the goodness of God. You don't need the Father to make this happen. You can do it on your own. He's trying to get Jesus to act independently from the rest of the Trinity. Now listen to this. If God led Jesus to the wilderness to fast for 40 days, then don't you think God had everything under control before the 40 days had ever gotten there? Like if that's the one who led him to fast, if that's the one who led him to these 40 days, if that's the one who led him to the wilderness, don't you think if he truly trusts in the provision of God that those 40 days could be handled because God has everything in the palm of his hand? That's what happens. The devil takes something that God is preparing for something way better and he tries to shift it, something that's good, something that's okay, something that won't hurt you, something that even God gave you himself. And he takes that something and he says, hey, take this outside of the context of your relationship with God. You really don't need him. Have this on your own. Have your own way. Have your own passions. Who cares about his provision?" And what he does is, he tries to break the trust that Jesus has in the provision of God. He wants him to seek his own passions over God's provisions. Now listen, this doesn't just have to happen when it comes to food. These are all types of physical desires, even ones that we may wrestle with more than just hunger pains. As a matter of fact, Paul links two desires together that I think are always interesting when I read his letter to the Corinthians. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Let me read them to you. This is Paul writing. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's a lot of good things that God has offered out there. But if those passions control me to the point that I want them beyond God's provision, they're not good for me to have. Now watch this. He connects two things that I think are fascinating. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach 
for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, this should sound familiar. This is how the devil is tempting Jesus to provide for a physical need to eat food. But watch the second one that he links with an appetite. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Isn't it interesting that on one hand, Paul would talk about our appetite for food, and on the other hand, he would talk about our appetite for sex. And you say, Danny, sex and food, very, very different. Just for a moment, think about the fact how both of these are physical desires that we have. Not only are they physical desires that we have, we were made and created for them. God made our stomach for food. You hunger because you need it to survive, right? Food is not bad. God created us to procreate and to enjoy one another and to commune. He knew that Adam was not fit to be alone. What did he do? He created Eve. They are perfectly separate and can fit together like a puzzle, literally. Why? Because God designed that for our enjoyment. What does the devil do? He takes food that God created for our enjoyment and he tries to use it for us to love it more than God, right? He takes sex, which is for our enjoyment, right? And the perfect uh, 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 union of marriage between a husband and a wife. And he says, no, 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 God made you that way. He created that. He gave you those desires. Go have it. Go get it. Go take it. Who's it really hurting? What's it really going to cost? Is it really that big of a deal? And he starts leading you to long for your passions over God's provision. This is what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis. Think back to Eve in the garden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she gave in to the desires of the flesh. This is what John was writing about in 1 John chapter 2. This is what the people of Israel did during the Exodus. This is what each of us do when we seek to follow our passions over God's provisions. He knows what we need even more than we do. Will we trust Him even with our own desires? Can I show you something? Jesus certainly does. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. As a matter of fact, he quotes Deuteronomy all throughout the temptation between him and the devil. It's almost as if Jesus is a scholar of the Old Testament. He says this, this is what he quotes. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He set them up to show them that His provision is better than any passion we could ever give in to. Why? He made the passions that we allow to drive us. Why would we not trust more in His provision? We may not always know why God's allowing us to be tempted or what He's trying to produce in us, but we must always trust that He's at work through all things in our lives and that we trust His goodness, His truth over everything else. Let me, let me move on. I know I spent way too much time there. Just keep going in Luke chapter 4. Temptation number one, passions over provision. Look at verse 5, Luke 4. And the devil took him, right? He's tempted Jesus with food. Just do this, Jesus. You don't need anything else. Jesus quotes the Bible to him, right? And the devil took him. That didn't work. He took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. By the way, did you know what kind of authority the devil has in this world? 
Do you see from this, do you sense the kind of power that the devil has as the prince of the power of the air, as the God of this world? He can do these things. Gosh, doesn't that make it a little more scary? Watch this. If you then, I'll give it all to you. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now this temptation from the devil is an interesting one to me. He claims to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Now when you hear that, is there anything that sticks out from that to you? Why would this be interesting for the devil to offer this to Jesus? It's already His. This is a fascinating temptation. You say, well, Danny, if God's already given all that to Jesus, why would this be a temptation from the devil? As a matter of fact, I wrote down all kinds of Scripture of how Jesus has already been given this authority and this power and and all these things. We're not going to read them because you know this already. God's already promised to give Jesus all things. But in the devil's temptation, Jesus can have all of it without any of the things that he will experience in his ministry and ultimately in his death. Now think about this for a moment. If Jesus gives in to this temptation, he can have the crown without the cross. He can have glory without Gethsemane or without Golgotha. He can be the Messiah without any of the mess. He can have success without submission, authority without anguish. The devil is offering Jesus a shortcut to success. Temptation number two shows its face. It deals with possessions, or really maybe the underlying goal, power, over presence. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Would having all this be worth it if God is left out? devil says, Jesus, I give you all of it. All the kingdoms of the world will be yours. All the authority, all the power, every bit of it now. You won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to deal with the humiliation. You won't have to feel the shame. You won't have to die on this cross. The suffering will never happen if you will just worship me. Here is your shortcut to success. Jesus, will you take it? And I have to think for a moment. Would all of it be worth it if God's left out? This one shortcut would destroy God's plan to redeem humanity. This would end God's purpose in all of creation. Jesus put this temptation a little bit different in Luke chapter 9. Let me read these verses to you. And he said to all, this is Jesus, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Sounds a little different than what Satan is offering in this moment, right? He goes on. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now think back again to Eve in the garden. Not only was the tree desirable for food, but it was, as she describes it, a delight to the eyes, or what John would refer to when he wrote as the desires of the eyes. Jesus was being tempted just like man always has been and always will be. In other words, listen, do we want stuff 
Do we want success or do we want a Savior? Now, Jesus is clear about His decision. He quotes again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by His name you shall swear. As a matter of fact, Joshua would put it like this in Joshua 24, 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Samuel put it like this in 1 Samuel 7, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherahs from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Elijah would put it like this in 1 Kings 18. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. If you want possessions, if you want power, listen, can I tell you something? The devil can provide that to you. But can I tell you something else? You will have it without having God in your life. Do you still want it? He goes on. Let's finish. I've I've taken too much time. I apologize. Luke chapter 4 verse 9. Here's what happens, right? Temptation number 1, passions over provision. Temptation number 2, possessions over presence. Temptation number three, we find it beginning in verse nine of Luke four. And he took him, right? Didn't work. Jesus quotes scripture again. The devil's like, oh, shucks. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is another interesting temptation, in my opinion. There's a lot that could be unpacked from the discussion between Jesus and the devil. I want to point out a couple of them to you that are significant. The first one is the location that the devil takes Jesus to. He brings Jesus to the top of the temple and he looks down at those worshiping God. Now, this is significant because of an old prophecy from Malachi chapter 3. Here's the prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And you say, Danny, why would this be significant? Had Jesus jumped from the height of the temple, and the angels from on high rushed to his aid, the priests and the people worshiping at the temple would have clearly noticed the Messiah coming down from heaven in all of his splendor. Now focus on this for a moment. It's a little different picture if Jesus is storming down from heaven with legions of angels to come to his aid. It's a little bit different picture than a meager manger in Bethlehem where there was no room for him. A little different scenario depending on which one you look at. You know what the Jewish people thought Jesus would come as? They thought he would come as a king riding on the clouds with a sword in his hand and everybody would bow to him. Now listen, that day's coming. But that wasn't how he would first arrive. Let me show you something else though that I think is important that the devil says. Jesus has quoted scripture numerous times in his battle with the devil. And this time, the devil also quotes 
Scripture to try to tempt Jesus. Now, side note here, I don't know if you know this, but the devil knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything about God that you don't even know. He can quote Scripture way better than you can quote Scripture. Can I tell you something? He knows how to get you. So he looks at Jesus. Ah, I quoted Scripture. Ah, oh, shucks. Oh, I got another attempt. Ah, oh, I quoted Scripture. Ah, oh, shucks. So what does he do? He takes Scripture himself out of context. Of course, he's the devil. Of course, he leaves out a few important parts of the Scripture as well. And he sends it back to Jesus. Here's what he quotes. It's from Psalm 91. Let me read it to you. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now here's the, the misquoting, the course out of context, but the emphasis is placed on what the devil misquotes in these verses. The devil leaves out a key phrase. The phrase is, in all your ways. Now you say, Danny, why is this significant? Well, if you combine this with the, the, the testimony from Malachi and the picture that the Jews had of how Jesus would enter uh, the, the world, if you combine this with the, the devil taking out of context and leaving out the very ways of God, here's what you discover. The devil wanted Jesus to do things that would bring attention to him rather than doing things the way God had planned for them to be. Temptation number three rears its ugly head. It deals with pride over purpose. That's what it does. You say, Danny, what do you mean? God's purpose for Jesus was to come as a lamb, not as a lion. The sword would come later. The first time Jesus would come, it would be not with a sword, but with a sacrifice. However, if the devil could get Jesus to lean into his pride rather than God's purpose, then everything would be Defeated. Now think again back to the garden. The tree was, the fruit looked good, right? It was desirable to the eyes. And she also says the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She gave in to what John would later call the pride of life. You know what she wanted? She wanted her way rather than God's. She wanted everything for herself rather than according to God's purpose. What a dangerous place sin is can bring us. But Jesus quotes again, Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6 again, verse 16, here's what he says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now look at what Moses continues to write in this conversation with the Israelites in Deuteronomy. This is verse 17 of chapter 6. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Jesus is pretty clear. God's purpose is more important than my pride. Now I want to show you one more thing. I'm, I'm wrapping up. This is the last verse, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. He left Jesus until, interesting phrase, an opportune time. Now, every temptation has to make us think about the many different ways Jesus was tempted during those 40 days. It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation. Now, we may not know all of them. I would suggest there are probably more than what we see. But nonetheless, Jesus never failed. He withstood every temptation and came out victorious. Also, it's interesting that the devil left dot, dot, dot until an opportune time. 
In other words, listen, this would not be the last time that Jesus will battle against the devil. Nor will this be the last time of temptation uh, 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 gone from this earth. Jesus will once again be tempted before he is no longer healed. Here, the devil is always seeking the opportune time to cause us to sin. James would put it like this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This doesn't mean he flees forever. He flees until the next opportune time. Jesus was hungry, and when the devil comes to attack him, he starts there. He always waits for those types of moments when our guard is down and tries to attack us. He is weak and a coward, and he certainly fights that way. But can I tell you some good news? Let me wrap this up. The good news is that we are not alone. <laughs> the devil's got a lot of power. He can do a lot of things. He certainly couldn't trick Jesus, but can I tell you somebody he can trick? Me. Can I tell you something? He, somebody he can easily defeat? Me. Can I tell you somebody that's a pushover? I am. You know what's awesome? I'm not doing it in my power. I am not alone. Jesus is with us to help us overcome the devil and temptation just as he did. Hebrews 13, 5. Listen to these words. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He gives us a model for overcoming temptation, and he showed us in what he did. Here they are. We can't overcome without having a Savior. If you were to look back at Luke chapter 4 in the very beginning, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. You know what's very interesting about Jesus? Is that He never did it in His own power. He was never alone. All of what He had came from the Father, empowered by the Spirit. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Him? Can I tell you something? We can't overcome temptation without knowing Jesus. Also, we can't overcome without Scripture. Every time Jesus was tempted, he fired back with this little phrase, it is written or it is said. Can we do the same thing? Do you read it? Do you spend time in it? Do you have it hidden in your heart? I love this verse, Psalm 119, 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Last one, we can't overcome without support from other believers. You don't see this, but if you were to read this same encounter in Matthew chapter 4, at the very end, here's what you discover in verse 11. Then the devil left him. We know that from Luke's account as well. But Matthew adds, And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And I thought to myself, Who do you have that can minister to you during times of temptation? Can I tell you something, friends? There's a better way. It's going to be a long year, just like every year is. It's going to be filled with plenty of different temptations. But you know what? We don't have to give in to them. As a matter of fact, I titled this. I don't know if you saw it. Let me go back to the beginning. No opportune time. The reason I titled it was because of this. If we will follow Him, if we will live in the power of the Spirit, if we will seek Jesus in all we do, can I tell you something? The devil's never going to have an opportune time to attack us. Now, I'm not saying he won't trick us. I'm not saying it won't work. I'm not saying he can't do things that are really tough for us to battle. But can I tell you who's, who doesn't have a hard time battling him? His name is Jesus, and he lives in us. What if this year we decided that Scripture would certainly be our standard? And that we would process through the goodness of God as it pertains to the Bible. And when we see the devil at work, we know quickly, no, that's not how it is, devil. You might have thought this was an opportune time. But with Jesus, can I tell you something, friends? No matter how hungry he is, doesn't matter how weak he may appear, doesn't matter that the devil thought he could get him, there is no opportune time.
Think about that for a moment. Luke finishes up, devil's going to come back at the opportune time. You know what's funny for us? We get to sit back and laugh at that because guess what? There is 